Hello and welcome back to the Built Academy podcast. I'm your host, Carl Storms. For this episode, we see our newest correspondent, Hugo, join us for the topic of gender design. Hello, Hugo. Welcome back to the podcast. Hi, Carl. Thank you for having me again. That's always a real pleasure to, to do interviews for your podcast. It's always interesting and I always learn a lot every time I do it. So, yeah, thank you for having me back. We're glad to have you back. Um, so I'm wondering, what exactly were you uh, covering this month? So for this episode, I will be interviewing Jacob Small, who is a technical consultant for Autodesk in the field of generative design, which is the main topic of this episode. So I'm completely new to the topic of generative design. To, to be honest, I've done like maybe five minutes research on the internet prior to the interview, just to know what, what was all the thing was about and have some question ready for, for Jacob. But I thought it would be a great way to learn just to dive directly into the subject with Jacob. And I think that was a, that was definitely a good, a good idea. So before the interview, I just might gonna think we introduction about Jacob. Jacob started architecture in 2006. Uh, he began his AEC career doing high-end homes and small commercial projects at a small firm in the North Shore of Massachusetts. Doing everything from vacation chalet to kitchen renovations, hotel, accessible entrance for coffee chain using 2D CAD system. In 2009, he began using Revit in practice and proceeded to look to implement all the time saving he could get in his hand on. He, this eventually led him to moving to CBT Architect in Boston, where he was first able to begin implementing computational design into BIM's efforts, soon becoming an active member of the Dynamo community. In 2017, he joined Autodesk as a designed designated support specialist, where he's helped design firms around the world avoid and resolve issues as they apply Autodesk technology in the practice and get most out of their investment. And now currently is transitioning into a new role as a technical consultant, where he hopes to implement even more generative design solution for companies and users around the world. Okay, so now let's have a listen. Hi, Jacob. It's good to see you, to meet you. It's great to see you as well. So you, you're professional in generative design. Is that right? Uh, yeah. Yeah. Um, expert. Uh, sure. I'll take that title. Um, <laughs> I, I like it better than professional. Um, yeah. <laughs> it's, um, it's one of those things where it's, it's more a tool in the arsenal than uh, the, the thing that defines you in many ways. Okay, great. So I guess you can answer this question quite easily. So what is generative design? It's quite a ah, broad question. But... <laughs> it is. Um, so the way I'd like to think of generative design, it's it's sort of a, a method of design where instead of focusing on a, a, an individual decision, sort of the, the, the where does the first wall go on a project? Uh, instead, you're going to sort of focus on what do I want to get out of the, the project? How do I evaluate that to know that whatever's in front of me meets that outcome I'm after? Uh, and then you build sort of a computational tool of sorts to uh, let the computer sort of explore the design space, right? You're going to figure out what your lower limits are, your upper limits are within the space, and then tell the computer to kind of go nuts and then evaluate those results 
to ensure that the decision that you make, whatever one you use to get those initial actual lines of yours on the paper is gonna be sort of achieving that outcome that you originally focused in on, um, which is a lot of words, but. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, definitely. Well, it seems quite abstract for now, I guess, but uh, later on we got some question about like some examples in, in real life. So yeah, maybe you can have a better, deeper understanding of what, what it can looks like. So what is not a generative design? Because I think maybe there is some confusion in in the market, and uh, yeah. And so what what is not generative design? Yeah, absolutely. Um, there's uh, there's a lot of confusion out there, and a lot of people hear it uh, and they think, well, you know, oh, that's the computer taking over for me. That's the you know the computer's going to do all the work. I'm not going to be designing anymore. Um, and that's not the case. Uh, really, generative design. Uh, it's a Again, it's a tool in your arsenal. It's not necessarily the thing that defines you, but it's the thing that allows you to get where you're going in you know, a faster way or ensure that you get to where you want to be. Um, it's, so it's not taking your job. It's not uh, becoming the designer. Uh, it's also not easy uh, by any means. Uh, it, it takes takes some time uh, to really get to that um, point where, yes, this, this is the right code base that I want to work with to achieve my desired outcomes. All right, great, thanks. And so when does the gen like this concept of generative design started? Like, is that recent? Is that very old or? I mean, it, it depends on how you frame the question of what is design, right? So if, if you're designing a building, um, that's relatively recent, but if you're designing um, the optimal location for cell phone tower placement, all right, well, that's a, bit different. It's still a design problem, uh, but it's definitely a different one. And that's something a little bit more uh, functional uh, within that that space. I mean, really the roots for generative design date back to the 50s, right? Where people okay. are saying, hey, I've got a problem. I need to understand how to solve this problem. Maybe instead of, you know, where it's indimensionally complex, there's no like perfect outcome. You know, I could have it be stronger, but then it's going to be more expensive and heavier, right? And so how do you come to sort of that, that happy medium? And so um, uh, I think it was Turing perhaps actually uh, who proposed like, what if we could have, you know, this sort of series of evolved decisions where the computer would try something, see how it works, try something else, did that work better or worse, right? And then learn from that, that series of progressions. And that was uh, eventually brought into uh, the genetic algorithms or the precursors to the genetic algorithms we have today. Uh, and continued to evolve to sort of help people make those decisions. And the first commercial product was sometime in the 90s, um, and it's built off Excel, right? Where it's like, you know, what do, what do I really want to do with this data? Uh, and it continues to exist today, uh, which is kind of crazy to hear. But it, again, it's not necessarily for buildings. So for buildings to really take off, we had to get to the point where, because there's so much, you know, it's, it's one of those wicked problems where there is no like one true solution for what architecture is, right? Otherwise we'd all be seeing the exact same things everywhere we go and nobody wants that. Uh, so in this, you know, infinitely complex problem, um, we needed a lot more compute power than what we had in the nineties to be able to do that. So with the introduction of uh, some greater coding tools and more architects who could code, we started to see that there's some, great examples of uh, academic work in generative design dating back to the 90s. 
but again, it was really, you had to be a specialist to get to it. So by the time the computers started to get a little bit better, we started to see better modeling systems built, right? We had parametric uh, BIM introduced with Revit and uh, parametric modeling introduced through Rhino uh, and other sort of tools uh, that allowed us to start to get to the point, wait a minute, I could change one number here and another number here and I'd have a completely different building, right? And so now we've, we've managed to set up this formwork that's defining the shape of the building, right? Where does the window wanna be? How many windows do I want on this facade? What do I want the floor to floor height to be? What should the roof pitch be? Change those numbers around and you get a different outcome. And what does that mean for the shadow? What does that mean for the light coming in? Um, and uh, eventually, uh, it sort of became clear that as great as those systems were, we wanted stuff even lighter and faster and uh, be able to sort of drive these computational parametric models through um, simpler coding aspects rather than having to build the entirety of that piece. And that's really where uh, visual programming came in through uh, tools like Grasshopper and Dynamo. Um, I think Grasshopper back in like 2007 first got, got started and then uh, Dynamo came about seven or eight years later. Um, and as that started to happen, the last five years or so, where those experts in those visual programming tools have started to come along and introduced even more textual code, uh, suddenly we're able to implement genetic algorithms or simulated annealing or swarm optimization uh, inside that context to really start to explore the, let the computer explore the space with us, uh, which is really what this is all about. Okay, so uh, I guess that, that it is relying on on AI. Is that right? Kind of. Kind of. Um, it's and it's programming not necessarily. As well. Yeah, yeah. It's not necessarily AI um, in the sense that you know most people have, where the computer just sort of knows what to do. Uh, the computer on on each study. Um, well, let's let's talk quick about what a genetic algorithm is, right? So um, basically, you have a problem. Right. Uh, let's say you've got a, a, a spline curve and you, you want to find the highest point on the spline. You could say, OK, find me a point at n percentage along that curve. All right. Well, that's easy enough. Let's try 0.25, 25% of the curve. Oh, we're up at this height. Is that the highest? I don't know. I've got to sample a few more times because I've only sampled once. I've got some kind of an idea. So you might say, well, let's sample 25, 50, 75% in both ends. Right. So we've got five samples. Which one's the highest? Right. Well, it's this one, but is it the absolute highest? We don't know. But we could start to sample around that highest and, you know, the next time out. But the only way we can do that is if we take some samples, pause, say, what was the better performing? Let's take some more samples using that better performing to continue to see if we can climb the hill. Um, and this uh, kind of a, you know, it's an absolute sort of straw man of uh, a toy problem because we can always find the highest point on the curve, right? Take the bounding box, get the uh, the top of the bounding box, and you're done. But um, the the concept of sort of letting the design space explore that is a little bit more true and sort of graspable upfront. So anyway, after taking those five samples, you learn something, or the computer learns something. Then it takes another five. Then it learns a little bit more, and it takes another five. Um, and each time, it's sort of mutating. Uh, what that optimal call is to try and get better than what it what it did before and better and better and better until hopefully you find that optimal solution. You find the highest possible point um, relative to the constraints that you've built in that model. Um, 
And that's really what the core root for a lot of the generative design tools out there is, uh, is that algorithm, you know, be it Wallacey, be it the capital G generative design uh, for Revit uh, that uh, my employer Autodesk has out there. You know, it's, uh, it's really kind of the way that uh, more, more of the successful stuff's out there, but it's not the only one. Uh, particles okay. form optimization and simulated annealing and, you know, all these other things, wave, wave function collapse algorithms and all, all sorts of other cool tools are out there to allow you to do this. And So uh, in the construction industry, how has it changed or evolved over the last five years? Because you're talking about tools, new tools coming out. So is that is that a fast growing thing or is that still yeah, it's like specialized? It, it does take a bit of a specialist, right? Um, because you have to be able to build the tool under like the code that you're going to iterate over, right? You have to be able to build that model um, and understand how to evaluate what that outcome is. So um, what we're starting to see in all sorts of aspects of the industry is a um, the power coders, if you will, the power sort of visual scripters or, or um, uh, computational designers coming together and getting that industry experience, right? It's the kids who were in school 10 years ago and remember what they were learning then and saying, hey, I can take that knowledge that I've picked up back then, apply that to this other content that's out there now because it's it's consumer grade content at this point and solve this really complex problem, be it you know, uh, form work for uh, concrete uh, sort of stuff, right? How do I optimize it so I've got the most leftover form work or the order and sequencing of my pores for the concrete slab or um, what's the best location for uh, the electrical closet on this floor? Um, all sorts of problems that a lot of times we've just sort of taken for granted, but by ensuring that we're sort of using data to drive the design, we're getting to that optimal outcome of, you know, least amount of material waste, uh, least amount of days to construct the slab, uh, the least amount of run of uh, excess wiring, right? Uh, that sort of content all comes together. Uh, which is pretty cool to see. Okay, so I guess that answers a bit my next question of you giving us a couple of examples for generative designing AECO. Uh, so yeah, like the example with the concrete and everything like that. But maybe do you have like a, a real case example that you worked on it? Oh, I've got cases, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, I, I've done uh, space planning uh, where, you know, we've got in amount of rooms that we want to fill out. Uh, I've done what's the best way to uh, populate uh, sort of individual users uh, through the space, right? Like you can think of an office, like space planning, it's typically thought of like, this is where the desk goes, but there's the abstraction of that. This is where the desks are going to go. And those are kind of two separate problems. If I know where the desks are going to go, and I can arrange that, and then I can start to populate like what's the best arrangement for the furniture, what's the best arrangement for the seating in the restaurant. It's another one we've seen. Um, what's the best arrangement for the trade show floor or uh, the the entire urban space uh, that we're sort of building out, um, kind of opposite end of the spectrum. Uh, we've seen what's the best way. I've actually helped people work out what's the best way to run this uh, power line utility that has to run through a massive amount of landscape. So we've got the least amount of structure, least amount of impact on the environment, um, which is pretty cool to sort of think about it. You know, normally you think just it's a straight line, but no, think of all the structure that has to go in to support that because you went in a straight line. If we zigzag like this, uh, we're suddenly able to get um, 
a lot less structure or a lot less earthwork we have to move or whatever it may be. Um, and all of these things are you know, sort of coming out from, from different sectors. Uh, what's the best way to arrange the windows so that we get the best natural light uh, or the least amount of solar heat impact um, is another one we see all the time. Uh, it really, if every aspect of AEC has a way that it can be applied, it's just a question of, does, is there somebody around who has the expertise to apply it? Okay. And how do you integrate that into a, a beam workflow? Ah, <laughs> that's the ultimate, right? And it's, it, we see all the time, um, you know, this, this mix of, uh, in the industry of, oh, well, I'm the designer, I'm not the BIM guy. Or, oh, well, I'm the BIM guy, I'm not the designer, go ask him, go ask him, right? And, um, you know, hopefully you're, you're spelling out in your BIM execution plan early on so that people know there's going to be this tool that's applied here, right? Uh, and then it, it ties into sort of the larger uh, context of the project, because otherwise people might think, oh, well, that's silly. Why would we put that there? And we'll just shift the door six inches to the right because it makes this other thing easier for us or whatever it might be, not realizing that in doing so, it threw off all the other stuff uh, behind it. So communication is the first part in planning. Um, the other thing that's sort of really a must is you never want to try and boil the ocean in one go, right? So um, when when someone comes to me and like, I, I want to get started with generative design on this project, here it is, you know, and it's like, I've got 10,000 different spaces for this uh, complex hospital. Uh, and each one has to be, have sort of perfect relationships to the other. And uh, it's like, okay, well, have you ever written any code before? No. Have you ever done Dynamo before? No. Have you ever, no, haven't done that. Uh, so pick sort of pick your battles when first getting it set up and then it becomes a little bit more um, functional uh, within the context of the project and then suddenly you know you can run the run the dynamo graph or the, the rhino uh, sorry grasshopper graph uh, that takes that content out of your model uh, gets it into something that you can use iterates over it solves the one particular problem that you thought you had and gives you that return data which you can then drive parametrically uh, as you would if you were pushing in the button the numbers by hand it's definitely some a tool that make our life easier i guess but i like to i like to think that not every cool new technology or toys uh has got only advantages but they also have their consequent like disinconvenience and so what what are the drawbacks what, what are the challenges of let's start with implementing it into the into your your practice yeah um the biggest one um and it, we we documented at autodesk pretty well i think uh biggest hurdle is how do you define good design right like what is a good apartment what is a good whatever all right and now we we all've got that definition we're seeing it in our heads but how do you boil that down to numbers right is it well it's a good apartment because I've got X amount of natural light. And that's somewhat subjective, right? Like I might not want so much light. I spend 12 hours a day at a desk. If the sun's right behind my shoulder, causing massive glare on my monitor, that's not a great apartment for me, mm -hmm. um, right? And so um, that idea of how do we break down, take the sort of quantitative 
aspect out of design and uh, sorry, qualitative aspect out of design and just work with the quantitative. What can we boil down to numbers that means this is good uh, or isn't good, right? Uh, that's really sort of the hard part. It's, it's not hard to put together a model that says, yep, and we're gonna lay out desks in a row starting from this point instead of that point. And therefore we're gonna get 15 desks instead of 12. Isn't that great? Yes, that's great. But that's such a small part of what design actually is and uh, sort of learning how you can evaluate stuff and coming up with those evaluations is really kind of the key piece. And a lot of it comes down to sort of those experimental, experiential aspects of like, hey, what's the sequence of spaces that I can see of my building as I move through the city, right? Uh, if we wanted it to be sort of this, uh, this beacon and what therefore we can change the path uh, that we want people to take uh, leading up to our building or whatever it may be uh, to get a different, sort of experience. Um, and that's really kind of where the, I think this is going to go eventually. Um, we have a long way to get there still, uh, yeah. but uh, that's, that's kind of where I hope we're going to start to see it as more of that um, qualitative aspects being quantified. Okay. And can you, can you use that to help you to design structures, like the shape of it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so uh, there's um, lots of good examples out there of, um, let's say we wanted to put together a tower of housing units and we wanted to make sure that um, every single unit had a great view of the beach, right? Because, you know, we're multi-million dollar condos. Everybody deserves a multi-million dollar view from their multi-million dollar condo. Mm -hmm. um, what's the best way to sort of articulate and form that base level facade, pull it in and out at particular points to ensure that everybody's always got a great view uh, or some kind of a view without sort of um, A, impeding somebody else's view, uh, but simultaneously uh, staying within the constraints of what's buildable. Um, there was a great example from, uh, I actually think it was GHD, a uh, few years back where they did basically an entire island like that, um, right? And you think, you know, one building, yeah, not too hard. I could, I could probably do the math on that, but to say, let's lay out all the blocks on the entire island, as well as all the buildings on all the blocks. Um, suddenly that becomes, you know, this infinitely complex problem uh, where probably not going to be able to get that through a traditional design method, because once you make that one tweak to the third building in the back, well, the fourth building just got blocked. Okay. And can it, can it not be like start to be more complicated at the end? Like in terms of solution, maybe sometimes the computer, the program would find like a solution that is like too complicated to build or or maybe having too, more, too many choices. Yeah. Um, I did a, a session at Autodesk University a few years back. Um, uh, I had some fun with it, generative design at Hogwarts, uh, and, you know, the idea of what would it be to lay out a practical care of magical creatures, OWL exam, where we've got these animals that you don't want them to be anywhere near each other, because that would just be a big explosion and horror show. Right. Um, and with a thing of just 18, uh, items, I'm going to open my calculator here, uh, 18 factorial is six with three, six, nine, 12, 18 zeros after it. Um, 
okay. level of permutations for how you can put these things on space. And that's if you just have boxes. We can move those boxes around as well. So you know, you're in this infinitely complex space. The computer's never going to sort of be able to evaluate all those pieces. Neither are you. So you have to be able to start to come up with some ways to sort of hard code. You know, we, this thing's really explosive. Right or this chemical or this unit, it's an absolute must that it's here because it's key to the overall concept of the structure that I'm after. And so by defining those things, you can sort of ensure um, when you're building up that model that you're gonna get something that's buildable uh, without putting yourself into that point of the computer is gonna run for the next 30 years. Uh, and mm -hmm. by the time we're, we're done, uh, everybody who was working on this project is gonna have been retired. Uh, right, like that's not what we're after here. We yeah. want we want quicker solutions, um, and so you can build the model to to sort of limit that. But uh, it it does take that sort of you know designer's touch to understand that, and your intuition still plays a key. Yeah, so we need to understand exactly what we want as an outcome to be able to set up the parameters, the limitation for the computer to to do and go crazy. Exactly, perfectly yeah. stated. You're becoming an expert already. <laughs> just i'm just listening to you and just like summarizing it <laughs> that's it <laughs> all right so yeah so the designers still have like an important role into that definitely absolutely um the designer is always sort of key to the process i think it was there's an ibm quote something along the lines of a computer should never make a management decision because a computer can't be held accountable um, okay. And that that rings absolutely true. We shouldn't be turning over the design of our environment just to a computer. We should be allowing designers to build the algorithms that help them explore the space with a computer. We should be empowering designers with the tools and knowledge of how to apply them in the right order to get to the outcome that they're after, rather than just saying, you know, yep, you want a building? Okay, you know, hey, Siri, give me a, a, a hotel on block C17, right? No, mm -hmm. we don't want to get there, right? We want to yeah. get to the point where you're you're making those informed decisions faster. And that's really what it's all about. Okay. Yeah, I see. And so because it looks quite like quite a big job like to do that, I guess. It's quite it might take quite a lot of time to set that up. And so is that like more a skill to have like let's say you're an architect or an engineer, is that like a skill that you or a tool that you need in your toolkit or is that like a job apart like yeah that's um i struggle with that question every day uh for some offices you know the more people who know grasshopper or dynamo or generative components or whatever it might be the better um but in other cases to me the more people who know design the better um you know if you look you know if you really want to break it down right method of design where the outcomes identified and you build the system. Buckminster Fuller was doing generative design on his domes back mm. in the day. Gaudi's been was doing generative design way back in the day, right? So this this concept isn't new. It's just a matter of when do you apply the right tool? And I don't think it's right for every solution. I think it can help us solve a lot of the common ones much faster. Uh, one of the, uh, so in my role, um, my current role, uh, I, I spend a lot of time sort of showing off demos and, you know, here's what you can do with the software. And one of the ones I always give is, let's say a client comes to you and they're like, hey, I've, I, you know, 
really happy with all the other work we're doing. I just I want to build two little cabins in the woods for just a vacation retreat with my family. We want simple boxes. So, you know, maybe like a little bit of variation, maybe a couple boxes put together so we can do volumetric prefabrication, just ship them out on site and then be out of there. I want them to be as secluded from each other as possible. And I want to keep as many trees on site uh, with, you know, the least amount of impact to the environment. Right. And if I came to you with that problem, you're thinking, okay, I got to get the site plan. And then I'm going to sit down and I'm going to start sketching boxes and try and figure out what makes sense. I, you can write a uh, generative design algorithm and do this entire demo in about 30 minutes. And then now that you've got that tool, it works for those two cabins. Yeah. But what if we had yeah. three? What if we had 10? What if we had 75? What if we wanted to make sure everybody had a view of the lake at the same time? So it, it can start to layer on top of itself and you can reuse some of that, that process. And that doesn't mean it's always the right tool, right? There's going to be projects that come in and it's like, no, I want to, you know, I don't care about separation. Uh, I just want to make sure everybody has easy access to the beach, right? We're crumpling up half of our previous graph, throwing it away and building a slightly different one. But uh, it's that, that process of implementing it that really becomes sort of the specialty and, and, and writing that code the first time out, um, you know, let, let my, my colleagues who, who write the nodes that uh, produce the things do the hard work. Uh, you concentrate on the outcome is really where I, I think we want to we wanna get to. Okay. So if you want to start learning generative design, where do we start? Is there like schools, online learning, like YouTube videos or whatever? How did you learn it? Ah, man, how did I learn it? That's a great question. Um, so when I started my journey, um, I just wanted to do Revit faster because um, there's annoying processes that, you know, nobody ever wants to fill out a thousand title blocks ever. No, nobody has said, yes, let me fill out the sheets, sheet numbers, please. No, <laughs> it, it doesn't happen that way, right? So um, I said, I, I don't want to have to do that. I want to, you know, work smarter, not harder. Uh, and so I learned Dynamo first. Um, and you know whether you want to learn uh, Grasshopper or Dynamo, uh, focus there first because if you can't build the model, uh, you're really going to struggle. And what's great about learning that tool first is um, uh, you're able to break off a smaller chunk. Uh, after you learn a little bit more of that, then uh, you can start look at it as a design problem, right? Uh, and get into the generative design. And there's all sorts of great resources for that. Uh, I do a series of uh, videos with uh, Sola Moore on, um, we call them the Dynamo office hours. Uh, it's like every two weeks and people can come in and ask questions. And we, we've basically outlined everything you need to know to get started with Dynamo to be a me in the Dynamo world. Uh, the Dynamo forms, another great uh, resource. The uh, McNeil's Grasshopper forms, another great resource. Uh, there's a generative design primer that we've put together at generativedesign.org is another great one. And I've got a whole bunch of links for, for, you know, learning dynamo and generative design that I'll, I'll, I'll put together. I guess we can get them over to, to you guys somehow post them online. Uh, and then people can go and check those out because, um, me saying go to generativedesign.org or dynamobim.org isn't necessarily as useful as just give me the link. Right. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, and can you teach us something? Is that something you can do now? Like, um, in terms your... of about generative? Well, um, uh, yeah. yeah. Uh, what could I do off the cuff without having something that people can see? Um, hmm. Imagine 
kind of, we'll go back to that, that idea of we've got the two, uh, the two cabins that we want to put together and we want to figure yeah. out how to build the form of the cabin. So we know we want to work with a rectangle as a base shape. And you can imagine we've got a, a number slider for uh, the width of the rectangle, another one for the height of the rectangle. But that's kind of a boring shape, right? Like anybody mm -hmm. can come up with a rectangle. You don't need an architect for that. Why did I hire this guy? Um, so what you can start to do from there is leverage uh, parameterization of that initial rectangle. Uh, and what that is, is the rectangle has a start on the curve and then it's got all the way over and end and you can just trace out and 50% of the rectangle is gonna be the opposite corner from the start corner. Uh, if it's a square, 25% of the corner is gonna be the second or of the overall curve is the second corner, uh, so on and so forth. So using that parameterization, we can then define a coordinate system anywhere along that rectangle. And now we can start to say, well, what if I spaced some triangles periodically along the rectangle? What would that mean for being able to put bay windows on the side of this piece? And then I could sort of orient my rectangle, rotate my rectangle in space and choose where the bay window goes to sort of ensure that not only do I have this great perfectly shaped uh, building located where it wants to be as far away from the other building, missing all the trees, but I'm also sort of allowing us to get to that uh, sort of ideal view. So you define the coordinate system in the next piece, you define what shape you wanna put on that coordinate system. And then you say, okay, geometry transform, take shape two and put it on the new coordinate system and you're good to go. Um, uh, and that's uh, you know kind of the, the classic example. Now that that's put together, how do we evaluate it, right? Okay, well, one of the things we had was we want to make sure the cabins were as far away apart from each other as possible, right? Distance two from geometry A, what's the distance to geometry B? And that's right there. That's a quick evaluation. Another one would be that idea of I want to make sure everybody can see the lake from the bay window. Hey, that's easy enough. Let's go ahead and uh, say uh, draw a vector from piece A to piece B. And does that vector have a clear line of sight or is there too many trees in the way or is the bow, uh, bay window on the wrong side of the building, right? Um, and you, you, know, you could even do an isovis to say, how many trees do I see in this area? Um, and all sorts of uh, cool functions like that. Um, it's a little bit more fun when you can see, uh, but yeah. uh, hopefully that, that gives some people some sort of ways of thinking about, you know. Yeah, could... I'm sure people may go have a look at some videos after that yeah, on, yeah. The, on the internet to what it looks like. That's, that's for sure. That's what I'm going to do at least. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, just like, just but jumping on what you said just now, just thinking like in terms of, because if the computer kind of decide of, where your windows goes and everything like that. I know that I'm not an architect, I'm architectural technology. So I'm more like into the structural aspect of the building and insulation, energy efficiency. So I don't have that much of this feeling of the buildings that architect do have like, you know, the, the, when you are into the space uh, that you created, like the feeling created by this, by, by the room. Do you think that that, that generative design can remove or add some of it, some of it, like this human. I don't know how to explain that. Architects are very good at you know designing some, well, not all of them, but some of them are really good at creating like space where you feel good and you don't know why, but you feel as good. It's that that you know, if we if we step back and say the the act of design is uh, making a decision on what should be and recording that decision for other people to see, right? And that, that's a, 
a gross oversimplification. Um, mm-hmm. But that's, that's kind of the process, right? It's deciding what should become. And a lot of that does have to do with, does this space make me happy? And I mentioned before that idea of we have to figure out how to evaluate for that thing we want. And if what you want most of all is happy, mm-hmm. there's no formula in the world to evaluate for happy. There's pieces that might make you happy, more natural light, a better quality of light, uh, the view of the swing set that you used to come here when you came to that same cabin, right? Where mm-hmm. you would sit out there and just the happy memories of your childhood, those might help evaluate happy, but they're not the definition of happy. And so you do still have to keep that designer's eye um, in sort of stepping back and saying, is this the right thing? Yes, this, mm-hmm. this is the best way to achieve that outcome that I defined, but is this the best thing? Maybe not. Maybe we don't want perfectly optimal. Maybe we want not quite optimal. Um, and that's where really the, the idea of you make the end decision, right? Because with a good generative design, it shouldn't just be here's the answer. It's here's some answers. Here's the metrics that you had for each one of those answers. You can filter by a given metric. And then you can look at something and say, this is the right thing for my project or not. Okay, I see. Good. Thanks. I like this answer. <laughs> yeah, no problem. Um, so I think we're getting close to the end of this interview. Well, more discussion than interview, actually. But yeah. Do you have anything that you want to add for, for the, about generative design? Um, I mean, not necessarily just about generative design, but about yeah. uh, computational design, uh, computational BIM in general. Um, the best part about this subgenre of design, if you will, uh, is the community. Um, and if you're in this space and you're not getting involved in the, the community, if you're not speaking, if you're not talking to peers outside of your office, if you're not sharing your work, um, you're not getting as much out of it as you should, right? Like a big component of uh, Dynamo, a big component of Grasshopper and uh, the, those communities is the open nature, right? So much of the code, actually, I think Dynamo might be perhaps the only truly open sourced uh, code we have at Autodesk, right? If you want to go and you want to, you've got a perfect node that makes things better, go ahead and do a pull request. Let us take over ownership for that long term so you you know you you can go off and continue to build cool things um rather than trying to say you know uh i'm going to keep my stuff my precious just to myself um nobody wins in that way uh zach crone who's a a great guy uh colleague of mine uh has this great story about going to um city in the midwest i'm trying not to give anything away where he went to one company and they were like let me show you this cool thing i got it automatically lays out every seat in the stadium. So everyone's got a perfect view. He's like, oh, that's really cool. Yeah, let's check it out. And somebody goes over, they hit button and this user interface pops up and poof, all the seats were laid out. It's like, oh, that's awesome. I, that's really cool. Like, I've never seen that before. Next day, he goes over to a different office across town. Let me show you this cool thing I got. It lays out every state seat in the stadium. And he's like, I've seen this before, but yeah, let's talk about it. <laughs> and you can literally go through you know, the design world and see everybody's got a stadium configurator. Everybody's got uh, their own configurators and we're trying to keep them to ourselves in too many instances. And that mm-hmm. stifles your own creativity as well as the industry as a whole. Uh, you give back so much more when you give out. 
sharing yeah, giving to yeah. people yeah definitely stop competition competing with each other and just start creating with each other with other people yeah completely yes. with them <laughs> that's a bit yeah that's a that's another challenge <laughs> for uh, every industry i would say but yeah absolutely is yeah well jacob thank you very much for this very nice conversation i very enjoyed it so i learned i've learned a lot so i've done maybe five minutes research prior to this interview just to have an idea i was like i'm not gonna do it too much research because i can ask genuine question and really enjoy it and learn so that's 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 yeah that's perfect thank you very much good and if you have any follow-up questions at any point uh feel free to reach out and uh yeah sure no problems yeah it's been a blast all right another great episode always great to listen to uh to jacob talk and generative design is a hot topic a couple of things that i took away from the episode i loved what he said about you know what is generative design um, you have to think about the end to make the most use out of generative design so it's not just something to make your buildings you have to have a thought of what you want to get out of it uh, i also loved what he said it's not you know it's not the computer taking over your design you still have to use it, it just gives you more time to do what you want to do I also like that he told us that it's not easy. It's good to hear that coming from somebody that works with it all the time, that, you know, there is some visual programming or some coding that goes into it. It's, it's not just a simple button. There's, there's stuff behind it. You asked him about case studies, and uh, he had a lot of different things that he's worked on, as can be expected. So it's good to see that it's actually being used out there in the real world. And the final thought that I had was uh, he gave us a quote from, I believe he said, someone from IBM that said, a computer should never make a management decision because a computer is not accountable. And I thought that was a good way to put it, that, you know, you still have to have the, the designer still has to make the final decision. What about you, Hugo? What did, what did you get out of that interview? Oh, yeah, I, I mostly agree with what you said. I really like the, the, the first definition that you gave from generative design. I was very clear uh, for, for a start. And after that, we had like good concrete example as well. That was That was just perfect. And I love the fact that he was very candid about uh, the challenges from uh, generative design and all the complication that can create. But it was very optimistic about the solutions and the way that we can solve those issues. And yeah, like like you said, is the designer generative design doesn't remove the job uh, of the designer, and actually the designer is is still uh, a very important part of uh, of the for the, for the process of using generative design so yeah i think i really like the fact that he he allied this this aspect of uh, of the designer is really needed for generative design and it gives a new set of skill that gener that designer can have uh, in the toolbox to go on the market with and and sell them and provide new services to company that will help to solve different issues and and also like remove all the, the kind of boring job that a designer have to go through sometime during a long design, which I think as a, an architectural technologist, it's just great. <laughs> <laughs> Agreed. Yeah. Yeah, I think, I think that's a good point um, about the idea that it, it gives the, the designer more time. And, and I think that's absolutely true. And the fact that, you know, the fact that it becomes a tool and those that, that really like the technology side can learn that and become, you know, uh, at no point did, did Jacob say that, you know, everyone 
has to be has to learn to code and has to learn how to do the what goes behind generative design. And I think the fact that it's giving a bunch of the new people that are coming into the industry a way they can focus that have the technology skills, I think it's great because um, not everyone is the next uh, Picasso of architecture or Gaudi, as uh, um, Jacob was saying in the interview. You know, some people like to design design the square boxes, so to know the technology so that they don't have to design the, tech, the square boxes would be great. I completely agree with that. That's for sure. <laughs> <laughs> um, so that's great. Uh, it, it was an awesome episode learning about that. Um, as we're coming to the end time to transition into what we're doing on the next episode. So I understand the next episode, we're getting uh, more into the open source series. Do you have anything in mind uh, that you can let us know about what's coming up from the next episode? Yeah, sure. The The upcoming episode is with Mark Wieringa. We'll once again return and interview a true innovator uh, in the open source community, Diane Mult of Blenderbeam. This is an episode not to be missed, obviously, because I think that's going to be really interesting. And actually, I'm really looking forward to listen to it. Yeah, it it should be a really good episode. Uh, Blender BIM is is very cool uh, add on onto uh, the very popular Blender mm-hmm. platform. Um, so I, I think it'll be a very interesting episode as well. I'm looking forward to it. I want to say thank you very much for for sharing with us this episode, Hugo, and for taking on the role of interviewing Jacob for a great episode about generative design. Thank you, Carl, for the invite again. Yeah, it was always a great pleasure to be part of this adventure. Thank you very much. Awesome. Um, And before we finish, I would like to remind all of our listeners about the upcoming Built Academy Summit, as well as Built Europe, in-person events that will be held in Valencia, Spain. The Built Academy Summit commences on May 2nd at the Polytechnique University of Valencia with a Spanish and international workshop for students and academics, which will then be followed up by our international Built Europe conference May 3rd to the 5th at the Palazzo de Congresso. In Valencia, a stellar conference program awaits you and a lively exhibit. Mark your calendars, and I look forward to meeting you in Valencia. Now, to review all of the information from this podcast, you can visit the Built Academy website for our show notes, including all the details mentioned in this episode, including some great resources and links for helping you learn generative design from Jacob. Uh, You can get that at, once again, the Built Academy website. Please like, share, five-star rate, and subscribe to our podcast, and be sure to follow us on social media. And we will return on March 31st with our third episode in our four-part series on open source. Until then, and on behalf of the Built Academy team, thank you for listening, and stay curious. This podcast is brought to you by BIMTrack, the communication platform for BIM coordination with BIMTrack. Better coordination, better process, better projects better buildings. Go to bimtrack.co and start your free trial today.